Welcome to Not Your Typical Podcast. My name is Cheryl Warren, an award-winning trainer and consultant from the UK. I'm sharing my story, my passion, and my experiences to enable those working in early year settings to change their thinking, their approach, and their provision, ensuring our neurodivergent children thrive in these critical early years. This is your go-to space for all things that celebrate the wonders and the uniqueness of our amazing neurodivergent children, a space to learn, understand, and accept difference as just that, difference. Okay, welcome to today's podcast, and I have a real treat in store for you today. We are having a conversation, myself and Heidi Mayville. Um, Heidi is a trained mental health first aider and CPD accredited trauma informed professional. Heidi uses her knowledge, learning, experience to help other parents and carers to become powerful advocates for their neurodivergent children. She has built an online community of over 10,000 families supported by parent professionals and SEN advocates who want to improve opportunities for autistic learners. In 2018, Heidi's son Theo experienced a mental health crisis brought on by the struggles he faced in mainstream education as an undiagnosed autistic student. With Theo too unwell to attend school or even leave the house, Heidi had a lot to learn about autism, SEND law, and how to unlock support for Theo, who was, in des- who was desperate to be back in education. So Heidi committed herself to finding out everything she could about neurodivergence, education, health and social care plans, and what it means to advocate for your disabled child in crisis. Heidi is passionate about empowering families in their fight to secure suitable education for their children and young people. And Heidi has set up EOTAS, Education Other Than At School Matters, to support other parents whose children are too unwell to attend school. And in 2023, Heidi published her book, Your Child Is Not Broken, Parent Your Neurodivergent Child Without Losing Your Marbles, which made it to number three in the Sunday Times bestseller list and the overall Amazon bestseller list. And my copy is right here. It's one of those that I cried at, I have laughed at, I have screamed at and thrown it across the room because I'm so angry that why is this happening? Um, So I'm super pleased to have you chatting with me today thank you Heidi thanks for uh, having me you've got a first edition there as well I know I'm Very just I, I I love the the reels that you put up with you putting it in waterstones and like yes look it's all seeing it look it's here it's here I love it yeah I go bookshelves uh, bookshops and move it <laughs> right to the front yeah. right there Everyone get a copy everyone and on the way out I turn all the Harry Potters back to front it's very satisfying <laughs> fantastic so I mean I mean to be honest I I just I just want to hear your story. I just feel that that those that listen to my podcast and me, I just think can gain so much from your story and what you advocate for um, and how we can really support parents that may be at the start. I mean, I hate the X factor term, the journey, but at the start of their journey and, and you know, there's so much that we can unpick. So, yeah. What's your story? So you've touched on it briefly. Uh, like you say, uh, Theo crashed out of school when he was 15. Um, and up until that point, I had no clue that he was autistic. I say I had no clue. I didn't know what clues I was looking for. There were tons of clues. Um, but we didn't know that he was neurodivergent. I didn't know that I was. Um, as a result of that and learning what I learned and 
taking the steps that I took and getting him an EHCP and getting him a bespoke package of education, having him assessed and diagnosed. Um, when we got out the other end, by the time we got out the other end, three years later, he was diagnosed autistic ADHD. He has a tic disorder. Um, I was diagnosed autistic ADHD in the process. Um, so everything that we thought we knew about life, the universe and everything in it has changed in the last three years. Um, and it's a really common experience for lots of families, not necessarily all of whom have children who are as old as Theo was when that happened. You can be identified as autistic at any age. The oldest person I've heard of being diagnosed autistic is 79. Um, and, um, you know, I have people in my circle who are regularly coming to me saying I've just been diagnosed ADHD and they're in their 40s. Um, but one of the things I'm really passionate about is helping parents, professionals and carers to understand what it is that we need to be thinking about and looking for so that we can help people identify neurodivergent children earlier because we do know anecdotally and data-driven tells us that the later in life someone knows that they're autistic or ADHD or otherwise neurodivergent the more impact that will have on their ability to cope and um, not having your needs met is an incredible strain on your central nervous system and has a huge impact often on mental health. And the biggest killer of autistic people is suicide. And that's because we have a mental health crisis within our community of people whose needs are not being met because the world isn't built for us. So I'm really passionate about helping people to think about the way they think about autism in particular, but neurodivergence in general, and to challenge some of those stereotypes we have so that we don't have kids and young people and even, you know, toddlers and babies not being recognised when the signs are there because people are scared to say it. Um, people have all kinds of ableist stereotypes that they're carrying around about what autism is, what neurodivergence is. And people are actually reluctant to, inverted commas, label children when actually, I talk about it in the book, for me, a label is a care instruction. And, um, you know, if you know you've got a mohair jumper, you don't put it on a hot wash. If you know you've got an autistic child in your setting, you know that things need to be a little bit different for them. And that's what I'm really passionate about. Amazing. And I just, 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 just that kind of just outlines, yes, we need to, uh, and, but I do, th it is scary. And, it, and I think there are still those, there is still that element of kind of shame and parent blame and all of these things. I've heard of, of parents that are, uh, are, are kind of wanting that they're, they're, they're the recognition is there yes I see it in my child I want to go down this route of assessment and then they're told they have to go on a parenting course first mm -hmm. because maybe it is your parenting and maybe if you parented differently your your all of these these needs and these identifiers would disappear and, yeah. and I think there is that that kind of fear I know for me I I very much knew at about two and a half that, that my son was autistic because I'd worked within um, the sector I'd worked with with autistic children before but I wasn't prepared to say it out loud. Mm -hmm. And the day that that professional at CAMS, when he was six, said, yes, everything kind of brings together that there is a, you know, your child has a diagnosis, broke me, broke yeah. me. And it's that saying it out loud. And I think there is that element of, of fear still. still There's attached. a huge amount of stigma with, that goes yeah. with autism diagnoses. And it's incredibly sad. And the thing about the parenting course is that's rooted in the fact that historically, 
one of the medical explanations for autism, which has since been disproved, is that it was down to the mother-child relationship and that being unhealthy and that impacting a child's development. That's not true. Like, you, you can't catch autism. You don't grow into autism. You definitely don't grow out of autism. Um, and it's a different operating system. It's like... If you think about telephones, you know, if you think that people who are not autistic are androids and people who are autistic are iPhones or whichever way around you want to think about it. We look the same. We operate the same way. Some of us, we're both phones. We're all human. But essentially, the way that our brains work and the way that we're wired differs. Um, but, that, you know, for me, when I first had it suggested to me that Theo might be autistic, I was horrified. What do you mean? There's nothing wrong with him. He's not autistic. I was offended, you know, because we have these stereotypes of, you know, if you're, if you're of my generation, autism in the media was Rain Man and a character from What's Eating Gilbert Grape. And my son was nothing like either of those people, even though like there's that is a presentation of autism. And, you know, when I advocate for autistic people, I am advocating for people who have those presentations as well. But we miss a lot of the signs because there is so much stigma and there is so much parent blame and there's so much fear. You know, I hear conversations, I'm in lots of communities and people say things like, I would rather my child be dead than they have autism. Like that's how terrified and how ableist and how miseducated people are about what is just a different way of working. It's just a different way of being in the world. That's all. And that's that's where but. But what we seem to have, have come to the conclusion, wrong conclusion of, is that difference is somehow less. Mm -hmm. Difference is a deficit. Difference is a problem. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you know, the title of your book kind of sums it up. And I talk about my, my child is not broken. My child does not need fixing. He does not need a cure of his neurotype. It's it, He doesn't. He's perfectly capable, perfectly able as he is yeah. but it just and, it, and I, I talk about it a lot with educators different does not equal less but it just seems to have this they're not meeting develop mar developmental milestones you know the 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 parents are we want to talk to that parents because we think there's a problem mm -hmm. something's not right it just and, and that language it doesn't seem to be improving yeah it's a very binary approach to development that either a child meets that milestone or doesn't and if they don't there's something inverted commas wrong with them you know as adults we know how different we are you know as adults we have things that other adults can do that we can't do take driving as an example just because you don't drive doesn't mean there's something wrong with you it just means that you never learned to drive you know it's it, it it's just that you know and some of us will never learn to drive because it's not in our priorities and it's also not something that we're really necessary going to be comfortable doing so it's about recognizing that difference is you know diversity in and of itself is what makes the world interesting you know if we were all the same life would be very dull if we didn't have autistic people our life would look very different and a really good example is there are a few historical figures who have officially been posthumously identified as autistic and one of them is alan Turing. without alan Turing, the war wouldn't have ended we wouldn't have won the war. We wouldn't have artificial intelligence. We wouldn't have the internet. Facts. Autistic people make the world a better place. And um, that's not to say that you are not a valuable autistic person if you're not, you know, mending the world. But, you know, <laughs> the idea that, that because we do things differently, 
that we are othered, weird, ostracized, um, rejected, ignored is really problematic. And, and it's doing everyone out of something. Yeah. And that's where we find, you know, a lot of the the interventions, the need for our children to be segregated, um, the need for our children to have input from a, a professional for me a lot of those are because our children are not conforming yeah the way that we need them to conform in order for them to fit our education system with the outdated national curriculum and and everything else around it so there is this we need them to be more neurotypical in order for them to be able to to get through the system because yeah there's no money because we we can't support them there is not enough provision all of those, all of those. Yeah, things. we we need compliance, otherwise Absolutely. society will collapse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and um, that's one of the biggest challenges I think, especially when you've got a child who's late identified. The reason Theo wasn't identified sooner was because he wasn't inconvenient. Mm-hmm. Had he been more inconvenient, it would have been picked up sooner. There were signs, and like I can share with you a couple of things. I was thinking this morning about our experiences with nursery and things that a couple of his key workers said to me and now I'm like well why didn't we pick up on that but it wasn't particularly inconvenient so it was just put down to that's just the way he is but when we have neurodivergent children who are inconvenient they're exposed to therapies that try to force them to be other than they are it's kind of you know comparable to when we used to tell left-handed people they couldn't work right with their left hand we don't do that anymore and because there's nothing wrong with being left-handed and now we make left-handed scissors you know progress yeah it's, the world is changing and and I do firmly believe that this generation of children young people are they're the cycle breakers they're mm-hmm. the kids that will grow up knowing about their own neurotype and knowing how to advocate and they will force the world to change to accommodate them because it's time mm. but it's not something that we don't all need to take responsibility for because 20 percent of the population are neurodivergent so there's a lot of us and um, we're getting harder and harder to ignore. And as societal restrictions get tighter and has, for example, as schooling gets more and more underfunded and more and more under-resourced, we are becoming more inconvenient. Mm. Um, so the wheels will come off for lots of children and young people. And the knock-on is the wheels will come off for families. And even if you haven't got a neurodivergent person in your home, you'll have a friend or a relative or someone that you care about who has a neurodivergent person in their home. And life's hard for neurodivergent kids if they don't have support. So it's really important that we that we don't do that. Oh well, it's you know it's not it's not my thing. You know, mm-hmm. especially in early years settings because our earlier provider early years providers are spending as much, if not more, time with very young children, um, and are a, and have relationships with those kids where they are able to see when there are children who are doing things differently you know they're kind of like there's such a pool of expertise there and there's such an opportunity there for us to be gently going do you know what that child seems to struggle with that thing I'm wondering what else they might need support with can we put that support in place now and then when we had kids leaving nursery settings and going into reception and into the early part of their schooling if they were arriving with information from professionals who had supported them about how to support them we wouldn't have crisis points hitting at different points in our key stages which is what we have at the moment absolutely I think it's that real certainly from an early years perspective there's a real kind of 
in some spaces, it almost becomes a bit of a battleground because you've got the educators saying, this child, this family needs some support. We're recognizing these indicators, these behaviors, these traits. And yes, we can support here because early years is very different to a school space. We follow the children's interests. We follow the children's lead. Our educators are learning about the impact of the sensory environment and reducing um, some of the noises and the smells and the visual stimuli. Um, and all of that is really starting to happen. But then again, because the local authorities they're working with, there are not enough of them. The funding is, is not necessarily available. Um, and for many of our children, they'll leave early years without an EHCP. They can put the things in place for an EHCP potentially for school, but therefore the support and everything within the early year space can be tricky, can yeah. be tricky to get. So whilst there is um there is a shift, and you know, I'm working with a lot of settings where that neuro-inclusive provision is really in starting to embed and, and staff uh, teams that have had to, you know, bring on a one-to-one a -one for that child, they're kind of decreasing because that child actually now feels safe in that space and everybody now has an understanding of what's going on for this child. Which um, is great. It's brilliant that we've got the, that happening in early years settings and I see it and we've got early years settings that are very neuro-inclusive, yeah. are very child-led that, you know, the, the work they're doing with those with those children are very much kind of like helping them to start developing their sense of self, their sense of confidence, their abilities to self-advocate, even, you know, in their toddler years, yeah. you know, and then they go into a school setting and all of a sudden that slips away from them. And they hit crisis. Mm. And we have kids hitting mental health crisis age five, six, seven. Mm. Because the difference between what you get in a preschool setting reception and then into the main, you know, the school environment. And the older you get, those things that are underpinning all those different ways of being are being stripped out at every stage. You know, even if you look at the difference between primary and secondary school, in primary schools, you've got, you know, for me, Never learned my times tables, never, couldn't. ADHD was having none of it, right? So in primary school, I would just sit at the table beside the times table on the wall. So I always had it to refer to. It was literally right beside me. That's where I sat. Hit secondary school, first maths lesson in secondary school, wasn't there. I was stuffed. And I had so much shame about it. I couldn't tell anyone I didn't know my times tables. I'd been faking it for four years. <laughs> So, you know, and, you know, our kids will do what they need to do to assimilate. Our kids want to fit in and our kids don't want to feel other. And they will mask and find accommodations for themselves as much as is humanly possible. And it's our job as supporting adults to be looking for where that might be happening. Because when those accommodations are removed, they will struggle. And, you know, it's our responsibility to make sure that doesn't happen. So in that school space... Do you think it comes, I mean, I feel that the the, the whole system needs a complete overhaul. But Agreed. is it is it train is it training? Is it you know, kind of now? What can we do now? Is it training? Is it funding? Is it a bit of both? Is it because I you know, I know the those doing the PGCE year, it's about one afternoon in that year. Half the day training. Yeah. yeah. For the whole of SEN. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and that's that, what I say. Everything, everything. That includes children with invisible and visible disabilities. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's not enough. And we're we're doing our 
our new teachers a terrible disservice by not yeah. giving them that information sending them in blind basically yeah um, absolutely. I agree with you it reform is needed education I mean don't get me started on education well we are aren't we but you know education in and of itself is not fit for purpose the way we measure progress isn't fit for purpose the way we teach isn't fit for purpose and there are some incredible teachers and there are some incredible professionals working in education and I don't believe people become educators because they don't like kids quite the opposite it's a calling it's a vocation but we've got decades of chronic underfunding within our education system and we have never had sufficient provision for children who can't survive and can't manage in a mainstream setting. And we've never had sufficient provision for supporting children with additional needs in mainstream settings. So, you know, class size is a massive issue for me. Sizes of settings is a massive issue for me. As a neurodivergent kid, being in a, a school of 1,200 children, when you can't manage the sensory overwhelm of moving between classrooms and every hour you're expected to move and your central nervous system is on fire, you know, you're, you're being set up for failure from the beginning. So, yes, funding is a requirement. Investment in education is a requirement. And we will need to wait for the government to pull their finger out to be able to really make a difference there. So for me, what I my approach has always been, I can't change the system and I certainly can't change the system for the families that I'm working with now. So what I try to do is educate families and educators about the system as we have it now and how you get the best out of it. It's not perfect. It's far from perfect. It's bordering on broken, if not completely shafted. But we work with what we've got. And one of the things with that, I believe, is that given the funding isn't in place and given the provision isn't in place in mainstream settings to support neurodivergent kids, we have to be asking for EHCPs. It's the only way to ensure legally and to have it enforceable that our children and young people have the provision that they need. It's not ideal, but it's all we've no. got right now. No, and, and that's what I have to say. You know, we, we we can't wait for it to get better because no, we, we, can't. we kind of can't see it happening anytime soon. It's going to take a very brave, strong leader and we haven't got one and I'm not sure there's one coming through. Just no. No, and like, you know, and so let's be honest, the education system as it operates serves the purpose it needs to serve, whereby it churns out people at the other end who are qualified to go and work for other people doing things to drive the economy. You know, uh, statistically, neurodivergent people are the most self-employed people in the country. As it stands, the education system doesn't equip our children and young people to become entrepreneurs. Um or even just to work for themselves. And actually lots of us are very unemployable. So we need that, you know, but we also need people within education. And this is a big ask because this isn't something that is available to everybody. And it's not something that is available, that is that people make time for. So, but, but we need our educators to be like, I am gonna be part of this. I'm gonna make a difference to these individual children with what I can do. I'm gonna educate myself, I'm gonna upskill myself. I'm gonna make sure that what I do with the kids that are in my care, in my setting, is neurodivergence informed, trauma informed, and gives them the best support they can have with the resources I have. That's what I kind of am asking of educators right now, I guess. Absolutely, yeah. Similar in terms of just asking for that commitment to know more, to learn more, and, yeah. and to be that neuro-affirming partner with the child and and with the family because if we don't we then get and I'm going to use a term because it's the term 
used, but I'd like you to to educate those listening that, that that's not the term we need to be using. We then get school refusal because yeah. that's, you know, and and I've heard you say before, it's not that our children are refusing to go to school. Theo wanted to be in school. It just wasn't Desperately. a safe space. It just wasn't a safe place for him. That's actually a massive barrier. This is one of the problems we've got, like the language around school refusal, I have massive difficulties with, you know, it, it, it's so laden with blame and it blames the child. It blames the parent for not being able to discipline their child. It's a horrible phrase. Um, it's not school refusal, it's barriers to attendance. That's that's what I, that's the phrase I use most. Um, we have children as young as, even we have nursery kids who we're bringing into nursery spaces that are supposed to be places of joy, places of learning, places of connection, places of safety. And because of whatever's going on for that child or young person, whether it's um, the sensory overwhelm of the space or the difficulties with, you know, cognitively being engaged in the types of play or whether it's relationships, whatever it might be, we have kids as young as, you know, three and four who are, whose nervous systems are so ignited by the anxiety of going into those settings that they are hitting their heads against the pavement. They are throwing up on themselves. They are screaming. They are, you know, unable to regulate their nervous system. And when you've got a child that young who is thrown that deeply into that stress response, that does things in their brain. That is making a stronger pathway for those responses as we move on. So even if you have a child who is predisposed to those sensory responses, every time they are forced, every time they are exposed to those stimulus without the support, help them regulate, not just at, let's just push on through, you'll be okay once you get in there, actually having someone co-regulate with them and make that transition comfortable and feel safe. Every time we do that to them, we power up that pathway and we make it more likely that those responses will happen in the future and then we get into schools and we have children who are literally having mental health crises breakdowns at age seven and eight because we haven't helped them to understand and we haven't been their regulation partner and when you're that age you don't have the language for it you don't have the capacity to re to reason what's going on you know, when you're when you're a very young child, you need the adult to be your barometer. You're you, you kind of like they're like your outsourcing of your nervous system. The adults around you are very much the the barometer for what's going on inside of you. Um, and we're making huge errors in the way that we deal with children and young people who are unable to or reluctant to engage in things that are considered normal. For their age group we're, we're messing it up big time it it needs that fundamental shift in our understanding of our children in front of us and i think it it's it's also that 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 kind of shifting that that mindset as well because i think there's been so much around autism awareness i think probably 95 percent of our early years educators have been on an autism awareness course we're aware of it <laughs> we know it exists it's there um, it's shifting that awareness to understanding. Yeah. So let's let's understand how that presents for that child and what that child needs from us. Yeah. 
But we then need to shift it that stage further to acceptance because we can understand. I was saying to somebody, I was I was kind of explaining it to somebody the other day, and I said, I'm aware I need to lose weight. I understand what I need to do to lose weight, but it can't stop there. I need to take action to accept that this is where I am. And if I want to lose weight, this is what I've got to do. You know what else I'd also say on that one? I'd be like, I'm fat and I don't mind. (laughs) There's that too. (laughs) So I don't have to lose weight. I don't need any awareness around that. I'm fat. I'm good with it. (laughs) You know, but yeah, you're right. We do. We need we need a commitment from adults to really dig into what this means for children and and and, and like to give you an analogy I think there's a big and I did this before I knew it the ridiculousness of it that the amount of books I read about what being autistic means when I'm autistic right I was trying to work out how autistic people experience the world and what could that feel like and oh my god that must be so unusual but I'm flipping autistic right and I had to read books about what it means to be autistic. There's a great book by uh, Annie Kotowitz, and it's called What I Mean When I Say I'm Autistic. If you only read one book, go read that book. It's excellent. But I didn't have that at the time. It's quite new. But what I kind of say to people, people like there's a lot of that kind of othering of and then autistic people do this. And, they, you know, and like we're judged by our external presentation. The way I like to explain people to is if you've ever been in a situation when you have been so incredibly overwhelmed by emotion, anger, rage, upset, discomfort, whatever it might be. I mean, anger is a really good example that you felt like your brain was on fire and you might explode and you're having a physical response. That is the experience that many autistic people have in response to things that you would not notice. It's a central nervous system response. For some of us, it's as you know, as simple as the sound of someone chewing, or you know, like the TV being on an odd number, or things just not being as we expect them to be, or sudden change. But our nervous systems, as such, are our responses. You know, neurodivergence is a whole sensory, a whole body response. For whatever reason let's just say it because we're wired differently let's not try and get into how or why but for whatever reason that is our experience of the world things that do not bother other people really bother us and that's how we feel it not everyone but a lot of us imagine if on a daily basis things that didn't bother anyone else brought you to that point of i might actually vomit i'm so rage filled regularly imagine how unpleasant that is and imagine that you are punished when you let people know that's how you're feeling. And that's the experience of autistic people, day in, day out. And that's the experience of autistic kids, day in, day out. We are told, there's nothing wrong with you. Stop making a fuss. You'll be all right. Your mum's going to work. We peel them off their parents. And they are okay when they've had time to regulate or decided that making a fuss isn't going to get them anywhere, making a fuss, inverted commas. Yeah, And so they find a way to push it down. But we know that when we don't acknowledge the way that our kids are experiencing the world and we expect them to hide it or to ignore it or to mask it, that that has a massive impact on their ability to regulate their emotions as they go into a later childhood. So I can only speak about my experience as an autistic person, but 
for example, I have auditory processing differences. So in a busy environment, when there's music and there's chatter and maybe there's clinking of glasses if I'm in a pub, I can't hear a conversation and I just hear noise, constant noise, and it's painful to me. So when I go out for dinner with friends, I'll be like, can we not sit there? That's right underneath that speaker. And people will be like, what is the matter with her? It's because without being able to do that for myself, I won't be able to be part of the conversation. But there's so much required to get to that point where you're able to say to your friends, can we not sit here? And there are so many of our children and young people who in that example would not be able to say, can we not sit here? Because they've been told all the time as they've gone through their childhood, you're just making a fuss. Don't be silly. Don't be inconvenient. You know, and what's the big deal if we sit somewhere else? Doesn't hurt anyone else. What's the big deal if everyone in the classroom has access to noise cancelling ear defenders? You know, so it's understanding that. It's like finding a way to humanise it for yourself and to just imagine what that experience would be like for you. And if using my example is helpful to you, I would encourage you to, to, it might not be accurate for every autistic person you encounter. It definitely won't be. Everyone's different. But I don't think people, you don't know what you don't know. And people cannot begin to understand what it's like to have your central nervous system respond in that way. Unless you've actually experienced it. It's terribly frightening. I went off on Just that little bit level of understanding that that's what that that person may be going through and not just to dismiss it. Not just to say, oh, just get over it or, you know, whatever. We'll be fine. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. Yeah. I mean, they probably will be fine at some point. Doesn't mean they're fine now. You know, we do that to our, we do that to all children. You know, we we tell kids, it's okay, stop making fuss. Don't cry, don't cry. You know, I don't know why we're so terrified of children being in tears. I don't want to make kids cry. But it's a natural response. It's your central nervous system expelling cortisol through tears. Let them cry. It's a regulating activity. Yeah. You know? Yeah. By all means, comfort them, but don't try and stop them. No, because yeah. what you're also saying is it it does, you know, that don't have that feeling. Squash that feeling. Mm-hmm. And that then kind of like you said earlier, kind of just pushes everything down. Oh, okay, I, I can't do that. I can't do that. But like you say, it's got to come out somewhere. And I talk about, you know, physical, physical sickness. My son had yeah. nosebleeds and headaches and vomiting because it has to come out somehow. We can't, we can't continue to to suppress it. It does. It and and I think the thing to know, like all individuals are different. Definitely all autistic people are different. All kids are different. And as humans, we are all of us wired for human connection. We want to be with people who get us. We want to be connected to people. When we're kids, we want to play with people. When we're adults, we might want to speak with people. You know, whatever that looks like. That is an intrinsic need for all of us. If there is an environment that usually a child would be able to do those things in. So let's say a nursery setting, for example. It's set up for play. It's set up for fun. It's set up for exploration. It's set up for connection. And you've got a child who cannot be there is so upset at the notion of being there that is telling you something because if they could they would because our kids desperately want to be connected with each other and with us so you know in the same way that when we when we're talking about barriers to attendance I I often say if if you had a colleague at work and every morning when they arrived at the office at the office door 
they broke down in tears, inconsolable, gripping the door, begging not to be brought in. And the CEO came, peeled their fingers off the door and dumped them at their desk and told them not to make a fuss. Someone would call occupational health. But we do that to our kids every single day. It's not okay. It's not okay. And that's where we have to look at alternatives. So where yeah. education other than at school, um, EOTAS is kind of, there to go and I but I think as well people just think well if they're not school they're gonna be homeschooled and it's about those it, it's like one or the other which one you're gonna take um and I think it's just so much more than that isn't it and I think it's just about informing parents when you're certainly when you're looking you know within the early years space and you're kind of talking to parents who are really worried about their child going off to school and feel that you know they're going around and I, I hear it from parents recently they're going around and looking at all of the local schools their child has done amazing things in their earlier space because the educators have set it up for that child to thrive in that earlier space. You go into a school environment and you can just see that that's just not, not going to work. work not yeah. going to work. And and but that's the route that oh no, let's give it a go. You know that or they they haven't got any HCP, so there's no kind of the child you know needs to be going to to that school. What are the options? What are the you talk about your your EOTAS packages and and what can it look like in terms of education other than at school? Yeah, so I want to say that home ed is an option, um, mm. and elective home education works for lots of families. The key is it should be elective, and I speak to parents all the time who tell me they've been told why don't you just deregister and home educate? Why don't you just home ed? Not all of us want to do that. It's not right for all homes, especially neurodivergent homes who have lots of other, you know, profiles in their house. It's not right for those of us who need and want to work. Um, it's not right for those of us who still don't know their times table at 49. Do you know what I mean? So, <laughs> and It's great though. We were, to we were told at school, you've got to learn these things because you're never going to have a calculator in your back pocket. And it's like, yeah. yes, you do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't even have to get my calculator. I just say, Alexa, what? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but I... You know, and unschooling is also an option. You know, there are there are families who decide just not to follow any kind of formal education program at all, and their children are entirely self-led, and it works really well for lots of families. And I've got families who have deregistered and who are the happiest they've ever been because they're home editing or unschooling their kids. It's the right fit for them as a household. And those children do learn, and they learn what they need to learn in the way they need to learn, and they will become, um, you know, useful adults in some way. They might not become brain surgeons. That's fine. Like, we don't need everyone to be a brain surgeon. Uh, but, or and, there's this belief that, or this misconception that an EHCP is either for support in mainstream school or a specialist setting, or that's it. And education otherwise than at school is made possible, particularly by a piece of legislation that says that if a local authority considers it would be inappropriate for a child or young person to be educated in a school or college setting, they can arrange education otherwise than at school. And case law on the back of that piece of legislation since has firmed up what that looks like. And basically, once you have proven and convinced the LA that it would be inappropriate, that's a big job. But once you've got to that point, um, you can have an EHCP with section I, which is the setting of your EHCP left blank. 
And you can have provision detailed in section F, which is all the provision, which outlines a bespoke package of education for your child or young person. And that's what we had. And that's why I help other parents look at whether that might be an option for them. And there are variations on that theme. You know, there are flexi schooling arrangements. There are people on roll with school who have education otherwise at school through an alternative provision arrangement. There are different ways of looking at it, but essentially it is there and it is possible and all local authorities, in spite of what they tell you, will have children on education otherwise than at school packages. They keep it quiet. Um, and they will tell you, they being the great they, whoever, whichever professional it happens to be you're dealing with at the time, we've never seen a child like this before, we've never had this before, or at the flip side, there are other children who have greater need than your child, you won't get any HCP, it's all hogwash. I'm here to tell you that I have parents in practically every county in the country who have education boys and school packages. It's not easy. Um, and for some of us, it's the only way through. Like we couldn't have for Theo where he was in his education career with his GCSE years. So we had to work really quickly. Otherwise, we were at risk of him completely losing any opportunity to get GCSEs. Now, that's not the be all and end all, but for him, it was important for him personally. He's very academically able. He has a lot of sense of self-worth wrapped up in that. That's what goes with the territory of being clever and having the only thing to pin your hat on when you feel like you're an alien and not knowing that you're autistic till you're 15. But um, we got an EHCP for him eventually and we were offered a mainstream setting but it wasn't going to work for him because sensorially he couldn't manage in a, in a setting with 30 kids in a classroom. He couldn't, for a long time, he couldn't leave his bedroom. Um, only recently he's been able to start using public transport. So it, that was off the table. But equally, the specialist settings that were local to us, which were all full anyway, but they weren't suitable to him because they couldn't cater to his academic ability. So the specialist schools in our local area tend to be for children and young people with very complex presentations of physical mental uh, physical and unseen disabilities who are mentally not cognitively as able as COR is and I have no problem with his with him mixing with kids like that but there wasn't room within that setting for him to get the tuition he needed to get his GCSEs so then I was like right well he can't be in mainstream he can't be in specialist what do I do I don't know my times table. I can't home edit him. He's not going to get a GCSE in maths with me. I was a single parent. I couldn't afford to pay for tutors. So education otherwise than at school was the only option for us. And it's been incredible. Like it's turned everything around for him. Um, and people often say to me, is it worth it? And I'm like, look, it's hard. Not everyone's the same as us. But for us, it was absolutely worth it. Last week, he got an offer for university. And that's what he wants to do. And if he hadn't had education otherwise at school, I doubt he'd have even got his GCSEs. So, yeah, there are options and it's about helping parents and carers to see what those options are and empowering them to make decisions that are right for them and their family and to really encourage parents to not shy away from trusting their own gut and for prioritising their kids' well-being and their relationships in their home above everything else. Attendance doesn't matter. It matters to other people. It doesn't need to matter to you. They just love those posters that they've thrown out recently. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the be and all because we need our children at school because if they're at school, everything will be fine. Um, that seems to be the, 
the narrative. Yeah, um, attendance but, at all costs. Doesn't matter whether you can actually engage in learning as long as we've got a yeah. tick on that register. And that comes down to Ofsted and funding and multi-academy trusts and all of that gubbins. But really, honestly, that's none of my concern. Yeah. My concern is, is my child well enough to be in college today? Can he engage? Yes, cool, he's going to college. No, cool, we're having a mental health day. We have those every couple of weeks. Mm. And we get pushback. And I just say, this is a disabled student who's got a history of barriers to attendance. He's a distinction grade student. Shut up, sit down. We won't be having this conversation again. And we do that every couple of weeks. <laughs> he'll be back when he's ready to be back and he'll pick it up and he'll keep going and he'll be... Yeah. You know, and, I, and for me, like, the thing about attendance that really grinds my gears is that what we are telling our children and young people is your health, your well-being, your safety is not as important as you showing up and contributing to capitalism. Mm-hmm. And we're telling them as they head into employment, if you are poorly... You don't stay off. You don't take care of yourself. You don't prioritize your own health. Such a dangerous message and so ableist. You know, imagine if we actually had, this is big stuff, but imagine if we actually had a society that said to people, we trust you to do the work. We know that if you if you can be here and you love your job, and it's our job to make sure you love your job, by the way, that you will be. And we know that if you can't be, you won't be. And we're not going to judge you and we're not going to tell you that you're an inferior human because you happen to have a disability that means that working Monday to Friday, nine to five is not possible for you. We're going to honour you for the work that you can do. We're going to respect you. We're going to value you. And we're going to just be a bit more grown up about it all. Like we were in COVID, for example, when people were allowed to work from home, you know, the arse didn't fall out of the economy. We were fine. You know, so, I mean, it kind of did but not for that reason. No, not for that <laughs> reason, know, for many other reasons. That was mainly not- because restaurants were shut. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, I I just... Telling your kids that you have to push through when it doesn't matter if you find something uncomfortable, it's about making it okay for other people is such a dangerous message, particularly Absolutely. to autistic children. Absolutely, absolutely. So just to kind of... I feel like I could talk to you for hours, but in terms of, of kind of pulling it together and, and just thinking about those within the early years space what what do you think either needs to to change or what information could be given to educators to kind of just look at things differently to support our children better what could kind of key takeaway could you leave I think I want to I would want to say to early years professionals like I've said you spend more time with our children than some of us do certainly you spend more waking time with our children than some of us do you know many many of us are picking them up from nursery and they're already asleep we take them home we might read them a story bathe them maybe throw them into bed and then we're back with you in the morning at eight o'clock in the morning and like you the job you do is incredible but you are also the eyes and ears for us and when we're kind of you have that that added advantage of being in large groups of children when you can see anomalies, inverted commas. But what I was thinking about this morning was this thing about the reluctance to identify or label too early works against us. And I want to encourage early as professionals to really upskill themselves to be able to have those conversations in a gentle, compassionate way with parents who may not be ready to hear it and may be frightened when you say, I mean, don't plough in there and go oh guess what your kid's autistic 
you're going to scare the pants off them. But when Theo was in early years settings, things that came to me in nursery feedback that I was a bit defensive about, but also didn't really understand what it meant. And so had I had a professional then who had been able to say to me, we're seeing this in Theo, and we think that might indicate that he might be neurodivergent. You don't have to say autistic if people are scared of that word. Neurodivergent covers all bases. The things that they were seeing in him was he had intense connections with the adults. He was more interested in the adults than the other kids, apart from one child who was like his little dolly that he carried around everywhere with him. God love him. But the other children his age, um, not much connection with. A lot of solo play that he was very happy to do. Um, he was a, an early and intense reader, so he was hyperlexic. Um, he lined things up, classic autism trait. It's, it's pattern recognition. When our kids are lining things up, they're showing us that they recognize patterns. That's what they're doing. They're playing with pattern recognition. It's just a different way of expressing the way they learn and they take the world in. He didn't sleep ever. So they would put kids down for a nap at 11 o'clock in the morning. They would <laughs> turn out all the lights. They would be sat bolt upright when they left the room. And an hour later when they came back, he'd still be sat bolt upright. He never slept. That's the ADHD. Um, and also he he was a really competent nonverbal communicator. So he was late to speak, um, but he signed and we signed at home. And at the time, it was quite unusual to have a child that signed, but I lived in Hebden Bridge and that's what everyone did. Um, but they they would say to me, he we're trying to encourage him to use his words and they would they actually tried to stop him signing. Um, I know you wouldn't get that now, I don't think, but at the time, we're talking 20 years ago, but they would, I would read things in his book and this kind of put my back up and that's maybe why I wasn't approachable about it if someone had come to me, I don't know if I would have been okay with the conversation, put things in his book that said, would describe an episode when he'd been doing something and they'd been reading a book and Theo had um, pointed to a picture of a flower and then pointed to his nose and they had said, flower to try to get him to repeat it back and he wouldn't repeat it back he was signing the sign that we used at home for flower but they didn't know that so they thought that he wasn't communicating and there was lots of conversations about oh he's not really speaking all the signs were there when he was I mean from him being very little a baby from the get-go had I known what I was looking for I would have known that he was autistic before he was even two I didn't know what I was looking for and the early years professionals didn't know what they were looking for. And because of that, no one ever had that conversation with me. And I think it could be such a gift that you could give to parents if you were someone who knew what to look for. And not just someone who said to a parent, I think your child might be neurodivergent, but who were able to then have conversations with that parent about how do we support your child's needs and how do we prep them as they head into school? What are we going to put in place that all of the things that we've got now that support them can be carbon copied and blueprinted? Is that that we need to support you in the HCP application, for example? But I think that shift would make such a massive difference. And I really want early years professionals to, to kind of like feel empowered that you do know what, inverted commas, normal development should look like. You've been trained to look at that. And when you see anomalies, like 
I'm not talking about necessarily age. We know that kids hit different milestones, right? But when you see a pattern of a different developmental profile in a child or young person, you are allowed to use your expertise to potentially have a conversation with that parent in a kind, compassionate, informed way about what that could mean for supporting their child. And I think that could make such a massive difference. And I think, like you said as well, it's those there are those kind of what we would consider those classic signs. They don't give us any eye contact or they put their hands on their ears when the room gets too noisy or, yeah. you know, they line things up in their play. Oh, they must be autistic with all these things kind of coming up. But there's also the those kind of subtle nuances in their behaviours, the children that, you know, maybe kind of sat a little bit squeamish on the carpet because that child's sitting too close and the carpet's too itchy or, you know, all of those little things that, like you say, that they're not necessarily the child that is throwing themselves on the floor or throwing objects or screaming out of the room. Or sometimes it can be those subtle differences, yeah. those subtle kind of things that you go, oh, let's put that together with that bit of information that we know and that bit of information that the parent told us two weeks ago that their child isn't sleeping at home or they're they're jumping up and down on the bed before bedtime and it's that they're they're regulating before bed you know you kind of start to pull together all of that information and you go okay let's take a holistic view of that child and and let's have that conversation 100 percent and and I think that our I mean, I don't I don't like the phrase all behavior is communication because, you know, for children who have motor differences, for dyspraxic children, for children who have other differences, that behavior is is demonstrating what's going on in their body, not necessarily that they have an unmet need. Mm. But I would say that all communication is information, all all behavior is information. Mm -hmm. So if you are seeing something in a child that you can kind of trust your gut on it. You know, if you've got a kid, like Theo wasn't um, sufficiently different, in inverted commas, for anyone to be like, oh, you know, like like you were saying, like if, you know, if we've got a particular presentation of ADHD and they're bouncing off the walls, it's fairly obvious. But kids like Theo don't get picked up because they're not inconvenient, because they're very sociable, because they're people pleasers. You know, the type of presentation that Theo has He's very articulate. He's very much driven by the need for social connection. And we think that autistic people don't want that. That's not true. So, but there is that element of, if you've got a child who you're just picking up on, there are things in the environment that are, I guess, sparking their nervous system. You'll be able to see it. You'll see children who withdraw a little, like you say, you'll see children who are uncomfortable. You'll see children who are particularly like, they don't like things like they don't like sticky things or when it comes to sand play, they're like, you know, that kind of stuff. Or they're bothered by something and then you work out that it's because their socks are on inside out. Or, you know, those things, those subtle tells. And you don't have to have a great big like, oh, my God, we've got an autistic one. But that is information that as adults, we could really think about. What does this mean for us? How can we make sure this child is comfortable and supported and feels safe? And we're, we shouldn't be waiting for kids to be melting down before we're realising they're autistic. Like, we shouldn't be waiting for them to be in crisis before we do something. And one of the biggest challenges is that we don't know what healthy autistic thriving looks like in children. Because we are looking for the signs of what 
not healthy autistic crisis looks like. And what that means is that we've got kids who have those profiles who are not outwardly struggling, but as they progress through school, that might become a challenge for them. And those signs are there. So it's almost like, how do we become like nervous system detectives to help us work out how we can best serve those children? Absolutely. I talk about being behaviour detectives. What does that mean? What's the why behind yeah, what's that? On there? What's yeah. going on? Yeah, what's going on? Oh, Heidi, this has been absolutely amazing. I thank you so much. There is there is so much there. We've been talking for way longer than I was intending us to. I know, I'm sorry. You might have no, to make no, no. Episodes. <laughs> I don't I don't care. Just 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 it's been brilliant. It's been absolutely brilliant. What I will do is pop up all of the links to your um sites, to your um uh Facebook page, and they have a you know us uh, Facebook page and the link to your book. If if you haven't got Heidi's book, just go and read it. Whether or not neurodivergence has touched you from a personal perspective from your family perspective it you will you like you say they're everywhere you will come across one. yeah we have um, infiltrated society <laughs> we are so, we are coming for you and yeah. what i would say as well is that we have got a facebook community for professionals if you just search eotas matters professionals community we've got a fairly small group on facebook it's pretty low key and um, but it's a good place to connect with other people and it's a good place to learn and we're going to be doing more work with professionals coming up in the next kind of 12 to 18 months so watch this space thank you yeah no i will pop that all up thank you so much um i know there was a a crisis before we came on so now that that was resolved um so i thank hope you for being patient with us that's all right <laughs> i hope you and theo have a fantastic rest of your day thank you Heidi, so, so much thank you cheryl thank you so